0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to get started tonight, 6.30. Open your bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. It is a dark and stormy night, so I'm sure our numbers are a little bit down. But we're glad that you're all here and got here safely. Isaiah 49 begins... Do you have something, Don? Oh. Um, Isaiah 49 begins at the start of a new section where Isaiah, the writer, starts focusing very intently and really zeroing in on the Messiah. Uh, he, the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus, has been talked about kind of in pieces here and there, sprinkled about, pampered about, in references. Some, Sometimes you get several verses of just a big chunk of a prophecy like you get in chapter 7 or in chapter 9 or in chapter 11. Um... Sometimes just kind of a little sidebar kind of note. But, you know, for the most part, the, the emphasis of the text, especially since we started this second half in chapter forty, has been on two of the three special servants that we've been talking about. One special servant is Judah, that's the servant of God who fell into sin and idolatry and was uh, it's going to be, not yet has been in the time of Isaiah, but it's going to be put into Babylonian exile as a result of their sins. The second special servant is Cyrus. That is the Medo-Persian ruler who will rise up, Cyrus the Great, who by conquering Babylon and through a series of providential processes will allow the people to return home. Uh, wherein the third servant of God will take center stage, which is the Messiah. So because of their sin, one servant goes into captivity, another servant brings them back home, and the third servant will save them from the sin that put them in captivity that they came out of in the first place. So it's a nice, big, neat, and tidy picture that Isaiah is painting, but he's painting it kind of one color at a time. Uh, so you focus a lot on Judah, and then we shift gears. We talk a lot about Cyrus, then we're going to shift gears now, starting here in chapter 49, talking about the Messiah. And we'll talk about him really through chapter 54, 55, and then we kind of hit the final sprint to the end of the book. It is like super hot in here. I don't know if it's just me. No, it's hot. All right. There you go. Let's crank that baby down. All right. 49 verse 1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. She's too cold, so she's leaving. The Lord... (laughs) The Lord has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother has he made mention of my name. This chapter, like I said, focuses on Jesus. We're going to be talking about Jesus in a couple of different ways. And so we're going to have to make special mention as we go through this on the pronouns and on who's talking, on the prepositions. We need to know who is speaking to whom. Sometimes Isaiah will put himself in the shoes of the Messiah. That doesn't make him the Messiah. He's putting himself in the shoes of the Messiah and will talk in the first person, but he's prophesying about the Messiah in a way like the Psalmist does many times in the Psalms. In Psalm 22, it's a very Messianic Psalm. You can can zoom in and say, this is David talking about himself. Yes, but it's not all David talking about himself. When, his, uh, when they pierce my hands and my feet, that's not David, his hands and his feet being pierced. That's him putting himself in the shoes of the Messiah through inspiration to prophesy, comparing his trial and tribulation with what the Savior will go through. That kind of um, messianic purview and first-person perspective. You get that here as well. But you also get a lot of not just I, me, my, but also you, your, and your. You, you and your. A lot of you verses talking to the Messiah. Because what we're going to get is Isaiah talking about the Messiah, either in the first or third person, and also the Father talking to the Messiah uh, in the second person. So here is first person. Listen, O Isles, unto me. Now, in any other text, time in Isaiah, that you just would say, well, that's God talking to his people. And it is. But we are starting a Messianic text. This is the Messiah talking to his people. You're going to see that more as the, the text unfolds. Listen, O isles, listen, O nations, unto me, ye people from afar, not just Judah here, but the Gentile nations, the people who will be the recipients of the gospel of the Messiah to come. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, as he made mention of my name. This is not Isaiah, speaking of Isaiah, this is Isaiah seeing himself as the Messiah through prophetic vision and talking about what he sees, how this. If you want to put it this way, this is how Jesus feels about himself. He is this one who has been called from the from birth to carry out this mission and this ministry, which will culminate in the salvation of his people, but that's at the price of his own life. We're inching toward that. That's chapter 53. forty nine two, And he made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand has he hid me. And he made me... Up. The King James says a polished shaft. That, I think the... the um, uh, what the Yeah, the, the, I don't know what the word for of an arrow. Arrow, the, the, yeah. I guess what you call it of an arrow, um, and where the arrow tip is on one end and the quiver's on the other. Uh, and his quiver, he has hidden me, which that's almost a Psalm phrase, Psalm one twenty-seven and so forth. Um So he's saying, you you've personally chosen me, you've crafted me, you've formed me, you've drawn me from your your uh, the the quiver of your loins to be poetic, to to use me for the purpose that you're going to use me for. And he's drawn me, when the time is right, to do the right purpose. Galatians four four to cross-reference there. And said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is not Israel, when you see the word here, I assume all your Bibles say the same word, Israel. This is not the old nation of Israel that's fallen into sin. You're going to get them in a minute. They're the ones who are the sinners who need the Savior. But this is talking about... This Listen, O oh isles, all you people who through the Messiah will become this new Israel, this new spiritual family of God with Christ as its head, this new family of the Messiah, this new nation of people that will belong to God, who will not be bound, whose nationality will not be defined by their geographical location or the fact that they're all circumcised or anything like that, or the... Um, uh, tenets of the old law that they would all keep and the sacrifices they would offer. This is a new nation of a new people whose covenant is not circumcision, but the crucifixion. This is a new nation who's not bound by geography because it's a universal spiritual kingdom whose tenet is not the old law with his old sacrifices, but the new law with the cross of Christ at its epicenter. So this is this new Israel and through which God is glorified. And God said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I, the Father will be glorified. Again, we have to watch our pronouns here. Who's talking to whom? Then I said, in response to that, this is the Messiah speaking in response to the Father, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. This is a reference to the fact the Messiah is going to come do his work. And this is a seed that's not going to be sprouted. It's going to be planted in water, but you're not going to see really the sprout of it. Until chapter 53. This is the idea that Isaiah is going to come back to multiple times in this section of how ungrateful and worthless is this nation of Judah, this actual physical people of God, to receive salvation. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That's how Isaiah 53 starts. To whom is God going to reveal his Savior? This worthless sheep that have gone astray, people that didn't want anything to do with him, that rejected him, that cast him aside. It makes one, if you are a man, feel like I'm doing all this for people that don't want me. He came into his own and his own what? That's the idea here. It's, it's not a literal, my work is actually for nothing statement. This is a human expression of what it feels like when you're rejected by your people. It feels like you've worked for nothing. They, all your strength that you've given for someone else is for naught. Why? Because the people are a bunch of stinking sinners who don't want to receive it with joy and gladness. So yeah, cross reference with John 1, 11, and 12. He came unto his own, his own received him not. 49.5 And now, says the Lord, that for me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob, now here's physical old Israel, to bring Jacob again to him, to the Lord, the Father. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Here I am coming for my people, coming to redeem my people and to save my people, and they don't want anything to do with me. But that doesn't make the mission of the Messiah a failure. It just means the Jews' perception of it is not going to come to fruition. What the Jews thought the Messiah would do, how they thought this whole process would go is, Alright, we did a couple of things we shouldn't have done. Fine, we'll admit it. Then God put us in captivity. I guess we deserve that. Reluctantly, he'll pull that out of him, that half-hearted confession. I guess we deserve to go into captivity. But then, then, now that we've paid our time, now that we've done our time, now we get the reward. We've, we've suffered. You're going to hear this almost verbatim in a few verses. We've suffered and suffered and suffered, so now we get the reward for suffering. The, you have not suffered because you've been doing good and the devil's after you. You're suffering because you got a spanking. You don't get to rub your... But and say, well, that really hurt, Dad, but now I get the, the ice cream, right, as a re- reward for, for my spanking, right? No! Don't do that again is your reward for, for the spanking. You don't get a treat after you get a spanking, that you're not supposed to. That's just divine parenting here. You did bad, so you got the spanking. But their attitude is, I did bad, I got the spanking, now I get the Messiah, and everything's great, and we get to be this... Judean empire is reestablished and the kingdom is reborn on earth and everything is great and everyone looks up to us and that is not how it's going to go what's actually going to happen is you're going to come out of captivity you're going to have a few hundred years of of topsy-turviness, then the Messiah is going to come you're going to hate him, you're going to kill him he's going to rise again and establish a new covenant for a new (laughs) nation of people only some of you are even going to receive him in the first place, the rest are going to completely reject him and keep looking for a Messiah that's not coming because you've already got the one, you only get the one That's how it's actually going to go. You, your part to play in this is going to be the ones who hated him and killed him. You're not the heroes of the story. He's the hero of the story in spite of you. But through that, those who do receive him can be made glorious and can make God glorious and make the Messiah glorious. In We can all share in that divine glory. Verse 6. And he said, it is a light thing I'm going to read the King James, and I want to get some different translations here. Verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that you may be the salvation unto the end of the earth. Beginning of verse 6, does everybody's Bible say it is a light thing? Or does anybody say too light a small small we understand we're not talking about illumination light we're talking about weight here it is a minor thing all right well what is a minor thing look carefully at the text the minor thing is not the coming of jesus although anything that's within the plan of god if god can conceive it then god can do it then it's a minor thing to god There, there is no degrees of how strong or how hard something is for god but that's not the idea here keep reading it is a light thing that you should be my servant that's not it to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore Israel, it would be only half the job. It would be only a half-hearted measure. It would only go so far if the Messiah came and only saved physical Israel. If that's all who got to enjoy the blessings of salvation, that would only kind of just do half the job. And not even half. Think about the the percentage of people who are Gentiles versus Jew. Jew versus non-Jew. You have this tiny little tribe of people. I guess, 12 tribes of people who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's them, and then there's literally everybody else. That's all a Gentile is, just anyone who's not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a humongous disparity of people. If Jesus, the Messiah, who here, this person we're talking about, if he only came just to save that little bitty group of people, that would be too light a thing for God, who is capable of so much more salvation He can do so much more. He can save so many more. So he's not going to limit himself to just saving one little nation of physical people. It's too light a thing to just to be the servant of God to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also, let's add to that. This is too light. I can carry more. Here's some more. I will also give you to be a light. Your Bible say light, middle of the verse? Illumination. I'll give you to be this torch. In a minute, we're going to give a word. um, The King James will call it an ensign, a beacon, a banner, a rallying point. Same idea. I will give you to be a light for whom? What does it say? The nations. The nations. My Bible says the Gentiles, but that's, that's the idea. Not just to Israel, not just to what mine says, the tribes of Jacob and the preserved of Israel. I, I, it's not enough, God says, just to bring my people out of exile, the preserved, that, I, that were, stayed there and, and survived in Babylon. Just to bring them out and just save them. When there's a whole other world out there. I'm going to add to that by making the Messiah this light, this beacon that will draw like moths to a flame the whole world. Now, literally, the whole world will not be saved. But literally, the whole world could be saved and can be saved, those who want to be saved, through the Messiah. And that's something the Jews, as we're going to go through this, are not going to be able to accept. Because they want it. Just, this is our Messiah. This is our descendant of David. We are the special chosen ones. So we should get this. And when they realize, through the prophecy, here that it's not just for them, they're going to have a hard time accepting it, and they're going to turn their anger on to God. But that's chapter 50. So, 49. I'm going to make you this light to the Gentiles, so that you may be my salvation unto the... What's it say? As far as the eye can go. 49.7 Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, and princes shall also worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and of the Holy One of Israel, He shall choose thee. Look at this, there's only two parts to this very lengthy verse. And the first part is like 75% of it, and at the tail end it shifts gears a little bit. The first part of it is this, is this big, long, running description after description of the Messiah. But Isaiah the writer uses certain phrases that he had repeatedly in the past of his book used to describe just God, who we might think of as the first person, or the Father, or Jehovah, or something like that. But he now is specifically applying them to the Messiah to come. So he says, thus says the Lord, well we hear that from Isaiah all the time, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One. That's Isaiah's favorite phrase for God, the Holy One of Israel. So he keeps reading. Who are we talking about? We talking about Jehovah? We talking about the Father? Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One, the one that man despises, the one whom the nation abhors, a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall worship. These are Gentile kings and princes shall worship. Who are we talking about? the Messiah here. But he takes those words and phrases that his readers for 48 chapters so far have already associated in Isaiah's writing to be God. And he says, that's who your Messiah is. Now, later, when Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, and not so many words, and sometimes in so many words, I am God, they're going to say, that's blasphemy. You're not God. But Isaiah said it first. Of course, Jesus told him to say that. He inspired him. But that's the idea. This is Isaiah telling you your Messiah is not just going to be some next David. He's not just going to be some new Solomon. He's not just going to be some king. He's going to be divine. He's going to be God. He already hinted at that, if not more than hinted, in chapter 7, in chapter 9. that He's going to be of God. He's going to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Well, this is the same idea in 49.7. He is the Lord. The Messiah is. He's the Redeemer of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's this one who is despised abhorred a servant whom kings worship and princes worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel. That's the Father. That's who we typically hear Isaiah talking about. He shall choose thee. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee. In the day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee. And give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth and to cause to inherit... To inherit... cause. Sorry. And establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritage. Sometimes the King James gets a little funky. Somebody else, please. Read verse 8. The the back part? Just start the whole. Just read the whole sucker. The whole thing. thing. Thus saith the Lord, in time of favor, I have answered you in day of salvation. I have helped you. I will give you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. Let's start in verse 9. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're not prisoners. That's fine. We'll get there. All right, so. The gist of it is this: This is God saying. Think about it like this: The people who are reading Isaiah, the original Judean nation, who's reading this text, they already have a covenant with God, right? Their covenant is is um, uh, visualized as best word. Their covenant is sealed, for lack of a better, with <laughs> circumcision. But it is this uh, understanding that they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have this special relationship with God. They're born into this covenant, and on the eighth day, it is codified. Um, with with circumcision, so you have this covenant. If they have this covenant, if they're literally born into this covenant, then what does it tell you when God is saying to you, "You're going to give, you're going to be to them a covenant"? Like there's a word that's implied; it's just not said, but it might as well be said. It is a new covenant. You already have a covenant. So to tell him, here's something that's going to happen, you're going to be a covenant to them. And the implication is, there's going to be a new covenant you're going to be. You're going to introduce a new agreement to them. And prophet after prophet after prophet allude to this idea that the Jews just completely read right over. Did not even appreciate or notice it all. And Jeremiah flat out says, he's going to bring a new covenant. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And he even tells you why. Because you broke my first one. You couldn't keep it. Because attached to that covenant were commandments to how to live faithful and be righteous, and you couldn't keep them. Nothing in that old covenant could have saved them from the fact that they broke them. So I'm going to give you this new covenant that will take your sins away, and I'll remember them no more. I'm going to give you this new and better covenant. Well, now here is uh, Isaiah saying the same thing Jeremiah said. It's just the the focus is not so zoomed out. Big picture is just zoomed in a conversational kind of way. Thus says the Lord, in this acceptable time have I heard you. In a day of salvation have I helped you. And I will preserve you and give you for a covenant of the people. This is a new covenant that's coming. To establish the earth. Verse 9. So that you may say to the the King James says, prisoners. Those in prison, or something like that says. You'll say to them who are in prison, you're free. Mine says, go forth. But if you're in prison, you're not going anywhere. That's the whole point. He's saying to them, go forth, you're free. He, he's not freeing people from actual bondage uh, of a physical kind. He's freeing people from shackles of sin. And this is what Jesus alludes to. This, this is what um, oh, um, <clears throat> uh, Peter alludes to in 1 Peter 3, when he freed people from bondage and, and, and uh, saved people in the same way that Noah did and so forth. Same idea. Say to those who are shackled, be free. To those who are in darkness, be free. My Bible says, show yourselves, step into the light, be in, be enlightened, be illuminated. You don't have to be in the darkness of sin anymore. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in the high places. Ways, roads, pastures, high places. You'll be sheep that get to graze without fear or worry of any sort. Verse 10, that same idea continues. They shall not hunger nor thirst, Neither shall neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them, for he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by springs of water shall he guide them. Now if you talk to just, you know, your regular Israelite or somebody who, maybe who really knows his Psalms and he appreciates the, the very countrified poetry of the Psalms, which they are sometimes like that. And you talk to them you say, who is, who is the one who shelters you? Who is the one who gives you shade from the heat? Who is the one that gives you pastures in which to graze like, uh, like a shepherd does to his sheep? And they're going to immediately catch the drift. They're going to know, well, the Lord is my shepherd. That's why I don't have to worry about anything. That's why I don't want, because the Lord takes care of me, Psalm 23.1. So here, take that idea, and let's just zoom in a little bit more and see who that shepherd is. Without being so broad as to say, God, okay, but well, what does that look like? How is God my shepherd? God is my shepherd. God leads. God protects. God shelters, because he is going to come down to be one of me, to show me how to live, and to guide me and protect me. So those who follow him will not hunger, will not thirst. They will not be scorched by the sun because He'll give them shade. But He that has mercy on them. Who is it, Jew? I'm talking to you. Who is it that has mercy on you? You say, it is God who gives mercy on me. Your Messiah is God. It is God who comes. Because God who gives mercy on you, it is God who is coming to lead you. That same one who gives mercy shall lead you. Even by springs of water shall He guide you. Your Messiah is God. This is this, this whole point of chapter 49, among others, is Isaiah trying to dovetail the two ideas. You have a God, you have a promised one, this prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18, this, this uh, lineage of David in, in 1 Samuel, this, this um, uh, till, till Shiloh come. You have all the references in the Old Testament of this one who is to come. That they had over here, and they have God over here, and Isaiah is saying they are one and the same. It's the same being, he's just coming in a human form to do all these things for you. And to finish that thought of all his protections and glorious things he'll do for you, I will make all my mountains, the King James is a way, I'll make a road in the mountains, and my highways shall be exalted. You could take the stairs, or you could take the escalator. If you're just looking at a photograph, they're both stairs. But seeing them in motion, you'd rather have the escalator. Because all you got to do is stand on it, and you just get an easy way over it. God is looking at his people and he's saying, you see an insurmountable mountain. You can't climb this mountain. You can't reach to the top of this. You're, you're not reaching the apex. It's too much for you. But I can make a way over this mountain. I can create a path for you that is smooth. Not smooth and easy, like you won't have hardship, but like you won't have to work for it. I will provide for you a way over this mountain. I'll make all my mountains this easy way to go over. And all my highways shall be exalted. Now... Verse 12. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and the west, and even from the land. My Bible says the land of Sinem. Is that what yours says? Mm-hmm. Anybody in the Bible say Asia, just in a long shot? I'm, huh? Yes, Y-E-N-E. All right. It's, it me, it's, like when you go on the map, I don't have the time to draw it. But here's Judah. You go eventually far enough, you look at China. It was just... Like they knew there was something over there, but they were not that, that familiar. As far as you get to like Persia and far east Persia, that's about it. So, but this that's like saying those lands way over there. That's what he's saying. It's those lands way over there that only we've only heard about, that we don't really have much maps about. So, what he's saying, again, look at it. From as far north and west and all the way to the east, as far as you can look, God is calling these people. Now, tie that in with what you just read. Read verse 11 again. I'll make all my mountains away, and all my highways shall be exalted. I'm going to provide for not just Judah, the old nation. I'm going to provide for the world. As far as you can go north, east, south, and west, everybody will have this way that will lead them to life. These shall come from far. This is not just a Judean salvation. It will start here, but everyone will come to receive it and to enjoy it. This is not, as it is sometimes talked about, a reference to the exiles coming home after exile because they were not as far as Sinem. They were they never got that far. They never got past Persia. And they certainly weren't all the way to the west or north or anything like that. This is a reference to the Gentiles of all over. That's why the chapter starts with, listen up, O lands, O nations from afar. Everybody gets to enjoy salvation. So, I tell you, everybody gets to enjoy salvation. You. Now, a soul in this room is a Jew. None of one of you are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, every single one of you gets to enjoy the privilege of salvation. What do you do with that information? You sing. You rejoice. You get to be saved. Verse 13. So sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Heavens is not heaven like where God lives. It's that which is above me. That's the word for heavens and the earth. Everything up, everything down, everything all around. Everybody, let's all sing. Let's break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. If I'm a Jew, I'm his people by birth. I'm afflicted by exile. But I'm not a Jew. I'm just some rando Gentile from Arkansas. And yet, I get to enjoy salvation. I get to sing and be happy as well. I get to sing with them. I get to have my own comfort, my own uh, hardships comforted. 14. But Zion said, hold on. What is this guy over here from Arkansas doing singing? I am—I have been forsaken. Why is God allowing this Gentile to sing him to him for his salvation? Why is he getting salvation? I've been forsaken. I've been rejected by God. He doesn't love me anymore. I, it used to be just me and him. Funny, that's the attitude. When they were the ones who made it, me and him and all these other idols. And now God says, I'm going to take all those idols away and it's going to be me and you. And all these other people, which that's much more allowable because he made those people. These these people, I know they made their idols, but they worship their idols. That's the big difference. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. No. Verse 15, God's response. Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, but I will not forget you. Yep, you can I, can I, uh, listen, obviously we're talking ideal situations, there are circumstances where a mother abandons her child, but generally speaking, ideally, there's something within the fabric of a mother, when a mother hears her baby crying, she yearns to connect with her baby again, can a, can a mother just switch that off, no, why, because that child is hers, a mother can hear another baby cry, and think, I'm glad that's not my baby, not the same thought, <laughs> But when it's your baby crying, even if all you hear is just the cry, you know your baby's cry, and you yearn to get with your baby. Am I wrong? Am I wrong, Sarah? When your baby cries, do you not want to be with your baby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can a woman forget her sucking child? No. That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? <clears throat> no. But what happens when your child grows up, and becomes a teenager, and a turd, and says, I don't love you anymore, and all those things that they don't mean, and it's a phase, usually... That happens, but not from a parent to a child. Again, that's the ideal situation. There are, always, there are always parents who fail to live up to the standard. But generally speaking, no, that's not how it works. And God is saying, I am your parent. You forgot me. You abandoned me. What were the words they used in verse 14? Forsaken and forgotten? You turned to other gods. I didn't turn to... Even if God had, before the Messiah came, turn, turned to other nations. He made those nations. He, they were supposed to be worshiping him. Originally, in the beginning, From evermore. They they were worshiping other idols. So how is it somehow bad for God, even if he wanted to, to turn to these other nations and say, worship me too? That's his prerogative. He made them. But Judah, they, they stopped doing that because they turned to other gods. And Judah was his people, and they turned to other gods. They forsook him. They rejected him. No, you're my child. You can forgive me, but I don't forget you. Matthew, doesn't this kind of remind you a little bit of when Jesus is talking to the Jews in Matthew 23, when he's doing the woes to the Pharisees, and at the end of that, it always makes me cry now that I've had kids, where he says, oh, Jerusalem, I would gather you as a, a mother, mother hen, hen would mm-hmm. gather her chips to her, but you he would not have me. That's right. Yep. And that's Jesus. That's at the end of his ministry, yes. summarizing the last three yes. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, this could have gone a totally different way, but you didn't want it that way. Yeah. That's exactly right. That, that you hear the parental sadness in the in the Son of God. Yeah. And there it is right here in Isaiah 49. Verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee, carved or imprinted, your Bible might be different, thee upon the palms of my hands, your walls are continually before me. It was a practice of the region to tattoo... One'self with various, um, you know, inscriptions or emblems to represent loved ones or loved things. It was forbidden in the old law, but the practice was well known. God references it here, and God uses it here, and He says, "I carved you on me. I imprinted you on me. Not just I imprinted me on you. I imprinted you on me." What does your Bible say? Mine says, "Graven thee upon the palms of my hands." And the palms of my hands, same thing. I'm I. I made you a part of me. Don't don't you dare say I forsook you. I put you in my hand. You ripped yourself off. Your walls, the city of Jerusalem, that I providentially provided for you, wherein was my temple and I gave you, and I'm I'm the reason why it's called the holy city. That's always before me. You're the ones who made it unholy. Verse 17. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. This is him picturing himself as a mother, Judah as the child. And he says that when the time comes, his children, this is the descendants of the captive Jews, the faithful who have not forgotten God, when the time comes for them to get out, they will make haste. Like, like children at 3.15 or whenever kids get out of school these days who are excited to go home, like on the last day of school, and they run to the bus or they run to the van or whatever they're driving, they race to their parent. Judah will one day see their parents standing there saying, time to come home. And they will rush to him. It's not a universal rejection, a universal condemnation of Judah. The just shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2. That's the just of those who go into exile. Some of whom will not be faithful, but the just, those who are faithful, who, who stay close to God in the midst of their Babylonian trial, will live. And they will live because they have faith in God. Verse 18. Lift up your eyes round about and behold. All these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, says the Lord, that's whenever God says that, he's making an oath against himself. What what else is he going to swear against? In other words, if this doesn't come to pass, then I'm not God. So it's going to come to pass. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe thee with them all as with an ornament and bind them on thee as a bride does. This is God seeing the gathering of the world, all the Gentile nations and the Israelite nation, all of them coming together into one big happy family. And it is one big happy family. It's just those who are on the outside of it who think the family should be theirs. They're the ones who are angry. But the family is is happy. It's one and it's big. I mean, it's not as big as the whole world, but it's full of Jew and Gentile. Jews who believe the Messiah, who obey the Messiah. Gentiles who believe the Messiah and obey the Messiah. And then on the outside of that are a bunch of angry Jews who think it should be just them and no one else. And they don't like it. And they're stubborn and they're angry and they think it's all God's fault. They're over there. Those who want it, they they will embrace and they will hold on to them. And they will bring them in like, like it's a marriage. Verse 19. For your waste and your desolate places and the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And they that swallow thee up shall be far away. Zion is about to be too narrow a place to hold all of God's people. The, the place where God's people said this is the home of God's people is about to be uh too, too small for the two of them, Judah and Gentiles. So the kingdom is going to have to spread globally. Zion is right now this physical place, and it's also described as a spiritual relationship occupied solely by the Jews, but it's soon to be a spiritual relationship that's home to Jew and Gentile, and you can't keep them all in one little city. Verse 20, the children which you shall have after you have lost the other, shall say again in your ears, The place is too The King James is straight, narrow, constricted, restricted for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. God has prepared his people for the fact that when they return from captivity, they will be much smaller in size than when they were going in. The northern and southern kingdoms, destroyed by Syria, consumed by Babylon, uh, rotting away in exile in there, and then Persia will take over, and then they'll be brought back home a diminished in terms of number, race. From God's perspective, they'll be lean, mean, and spiritually fit. But from the numerical sense, they'll be a diminished people. The day is coming when a new people will join them. They're going to go in a people this big, bloated and fat with sin. They're going to go into Babylon. They're going to come out of Babylon from this down to this. They're going to go in humongous, a watermelon. They're going to come out of a lima bean. And God says, look how small you are. but Look how big Judah is. It can hold all these people. Well, I have... No, this too big. i ruined my illustration. But I've got a whole world of Gentiles, and they're going to come in, and Judah's going to be too small to fit all of these people. I've got all of you, and I've got all these Gentiles I'm going to bring in, too. They're all going to get to be saved. You can't hold them all in Jerusalem. The whole world is going to get opened to salvation. This place is too narrow for me. 21. Then shall you. This is this is the sad part. This is what they're going to do. Those who don't like the fact that Gentiles are coming in. That's the mindset when you read verse twenty-one. Then shall you say in your heart, "Who has begotten these people?" Is that, is that what your Bible says? You may not say begotten. What's your say? Born. Begotten. Huh? Begotten. It says born. Yeah. Who has born me these? Who? Yeah. Who, who has born me these? We're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whose children are these? This is God saying, we've got some new people going to be living with us now. We've got some new family. We've adopted the world. They're going to come in now. They're going to be saved too. And Judah, this in their twisted mind, this purified, covenant-formed, little isolated nation separate from the world, they're going to see all these new people coming in, living in their house. They're going to say, well, whose children are these? Because we're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who's begotten these? I've lost my children Look how much smaller I am. I've lost my children and I'm desolate. I'm a captive. I'm removed to and fro. And where did these guys come from? These Gentiles. who, Who brought them here? Who invited them to my family? Who brought them up? I was left alone. Where have they been? I've been suffering and toiling away in captivity. Where were they when I was in Babylon? Hold on just a second. You were only in Babylon because you were a rank sinner who loved idols. You were in the same boat as those people. I brought a Messiah down to save you from your idolatrous sin. So why can't he save them too? And if he can save you and bring you into the family, and he can save them, bring them into the family, he only has the one family. So we'll just all be together. Saved from idolatrous worship. So the attitude of the Jews is, I was over here suffering and toiling away in Babylon, I should be able to come back home and have a good house prepared for me with all these nasty Gentiles eating their pork all the time, ruining everything. You got the spanking because you did something wrong, okay you didn't suffer for righteousness sake and expect a reward, which even then you shouldn't expect a reward, but that's your attitude is you suffered, so you think you should deserve something, no, you don't deserve nothing. you suffered now your suffering's over you say, where have they been? Just toiling away in sin. Same as you, except just not in Babylon. Thus says the Lord God, verse 22. Behold, I am going to lift up my hands to the Gentiles and set up my, King James says, standard, my banner, waving for them to see and come near. And they shall bring their sons in their arms and their daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. I am inviting the whole world to come be saved by the Messiah. Ah, ah, so adorable. 23, you want it, just me, just keep it me, just keep it, keep it small, keep it simple, and God says, no, I'm, I'm waving a huge flag, and I'm letting everybody know, here's where salvation is. Find me, sinners, and be saved. 23, and kings shall be your nursing fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. That's just a very poetic way of saying, if you stick with me, I'll make you royalty. Because you won't just be children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll be children of God, the King, through Christ, Galatians 3. You'll have, in a metaphorical, romantic, poetic kind of sense, you'll have kings and queens doing your dishes. You'll be royalty of royalty, because you'll be the servants of the King of Kings. Nursing fathers will be your kings, nursing mothers will be your queens, and they shall bow down to you with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Don't, don't get a big head, an ego about this, and think, yeah, that's what I want. I want the whole world bowing down to me. That's not what Isaiah's point is here. That's not the picture he's painting. He's painting this picture of you get to inherit royalty. You get to become 1 Peter 2.9. You were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of peculiar people a holy nation of specially chosen people to show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness and put you in the marvelous light. You're a royal priesthood. belong to royalty. Middle of verse 23. And they shall know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. I have a plan. It will come to fruition. And if you stick with me, you'll be rewarded. How much so? Well, how much more can I phrase it than to say kings, the very ones who are enslaving you in Babylon. Kings will be licking the dust off your boots. The metaphorical picture simply being, I will elevate you far beyond your slave status. 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? This is Judah's response to God. You're going to pull us out of captivity? We're legally in captivity. What gives you the right to do that? What is the legal procedure you're going to follow, Lord? i got five minutes. But you're going to follow, Lord, to pull this off. Never mind the fact that they're only in captivity because God put them there. So if he can put them in, he can bring them out. But thus says the Lord, verse 25, Even the captains of the mighty shall be taken away. We're enslaved to these people. How are you going to get us out? I'll tell you how. I'm going to take your captors and make them captives. Captives. I'm going to take your slave masters and make them slaves. What happened to Babylon who enslaved Judah? They became slaves to Persia. That's how God worked it out. And the prey of the terrible <laughs> shall be delivered. That's you. For I will contend with him that contends with you. And I will save your children. Throughout this book, he's promised one way or another, I'm going to put you in exile, I'm going to put you in Babylon. And every, um, not every time, whenever he makes that promise, he frequently follows it up by saying, but don't worry, I'll take care of them too. It's this running theme with God. He just happens to be this God of supreme justice. And so Judah sins, justice demands Judah to be punished. They'll be punished by a nation who also sins, so justice demands they be punished. And their punishment will result in them getting out of their punishment. It just, you'll do the time and then you'll get out. How? Because I'm going to punish your punishers. And I'm going to punish them too. And eventually, I'm going to bring a savior down he will save you all from the punishment that I'm going to give you. 26. And I will feed them that oppress you with their own flesh. What's your Bible say? Is it as graphic answer. as it is in mine? Make your oppressors eat their own flesh. It's pretty graphic, but Isaiah gets that way sometime. And they shall be drunken with their own blood. As with sweet wine, they're going to get drunk like gluttons on their own flesh and blood. And all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You have in Philippians of the New Testament, a very similar, at least at the end of the verse, a very similar refrain. Um, that uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Right, the, the supremacy of Christ. All right, This is the same idea, it's just much more um, R-rated. It's, it's, it's a, the idea is the supremacy of the king of God, the king of heaven, I should say, is going to be so understood that no one will be able to deny it. You can lie to yourself, and you can keep denying it if you want, but it's undeniable to any honest person. You can phrase it one way, you can say, everyone will see it and those who choose to submit will bend the knee. Every knee should bow, not necessarily that they will. Every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess. Or you can phrase it like this, and you can say, challenge me and see for yourself. I'll make you eat your own flesh and drink your own blood. That's just, that's just what God says. That's pretty hardcore, but that's how it gets sometimes. You should read Ezekiel. It's even harder and more core. So, all flesh will know that the Savior of Judah, the Redeemer of Israel, and the Mighty One of Jacob has a plan. And that plan is the Messiah. Only kind of talked about abstractly here in kind of a back and forth conversation. I'm, you're going to do this, and I'm going to do this back and forth in the beginning of this chapter. But as we move into the next chapter, which we're not going to do right now because he's about to ring the bell... Um, God's going to continue this idea that we started at the end of the last chapter, chapter 50, which is um, you abandon us. You bring in the Gentiles because you're done with us. You don't want anything to do with us. And God's going to say, between the two of us, who kicked whom out of the house? Between the two of us, who said, I'm, I want the marriage to be over? I didn't divorce you. You put yourselves away. That's chapter 50. But despite what you did to me, I'm taking the steps to save you. That's the magnanimity of God. That's the remarkable, amazing grace here. It's God emphasizing on the one hand, this is all your fault. Sometimes it just is all your fault. I know when we argue with our spouses, we have to come up with some way that's also somehow our fault, when sometimes we argue it is entirely their fault. Sometimes that happens, it's entirely your fault, but that never works. You have to think of something I did where I can say, and I should have done this, and that levels the playing field, and then you can move on. But with God, it's all your fault. You deserve all of this. And yet I, in my magnanimity, am going to save you anyway. We're building to that. It's chapter 54. Not 53. Chapter 54. Let's sing for our salvation. The way we get that is chapter 53. Because we're going to kill him, the Savior. We're building to that. So next is chapter 50. I didn't put you away. You put me away. We'll get there next. Thanks you all very much. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew dash Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.